says, there it is. Oh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> well, there you go. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group, everyone. As you know, we're always waiting for that awkward pause when Google Hangouts decides to go live, and it was probably 30 seconds this time instead of the regular 5 to 10 seconds. So We just clicked it, and we just sat here all staring at each other like, <laughs> when's it going to go? Yeah, yeah, so anyways, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group, the Wednesday, uh, August 17th edition. It's a little bit past 8 o'clock. We hope that you all have had a good week and a good day so far, and you've avoided uh, all the storms that's been taking place in the Carolinas today, up in Tennessee and Virginia as well. So uh, we'll kind of talk about that uh, here in just a second. First, let's uh, get our housekeeping uh, stuff out of the way. Uh, this is a live broadcast, so please feel free if you have any questions tonight as a uh, we talk about our topic, weather balloons. Uh, feel free to submit those via Twitter on our Facebook page. Uh, and then if you are listening on the podcast, uh, if you're listening a couple weeks after the, the show has been aired, uh, we'll make sure that we have our guests um, give out the Twitter handles for the respective uh, weather offices and you can direct any questions uh, via their uh, Twitter pages or Facebook pages. Um, towards the end of the show, we'll give that information out for you. So uh, this is the Wednesday, the 17th. Uh, August 17th, so uh, first of all, Ricky Matthews is out uh, on assignment tonight doing some stuff for his new station at the uh, Bristol Motor Speedway as NASCAR is invading the uh, eastern Tennessee area this weekend, so he's out working for the station tonight, and Peter is out on vacation, and Kit, I haven't heard from Kit, I don't know if you guys have, I don't know where Kit's at, so... Uh, we issue uh, Bolo, be on the lookout? Yeah, yeah, be on the lookout for Kit if you've seen him. Make sure. I know. Uh, Maybe with Ryan Lochte. Wherever Ryan Lochte disappeared to, that's probably where Kit is. Oh, man. Uh, possibly. I know uh, school is getting ready to start back at Charlotte, so he may have just been caught up in some meetings and just haven't been able to make it back in time. So, anyways, thank you for watching tonight. Uh, like I did talk about earlier, we are talking about weather balloons and just the importance of them. And uh, I'm sure not a lot of people know a lot about weather balloons, so hopefully after tonight's show uh, you'll be able to have a little bit better knowledge of uh, what takes place when we're launching them and just the information that it gives us forecasters um, as uh, we get that data in. So uh, before we go into the show, I'm going to pass it around to our panelists and uh, let them introduce themselves. And uh, I'll start off in Charleston, South Carolina with uh, Mr. Shay Gibson. Shay, how are you this evening? Doing good, Scotty. So, yeah, um, Shay Gibson with Weatherflow here with Wind Alert, and I kite surf, I windsurf fish weather, and uh, what's the one I'm forgetting here? Uh, I windsurf. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're the coastal wind and water sports forecasters here. Um, and so our weather in our neck of the woods has been pretty hot and muggy, not much wind to speak of. So our, our Bermuda high has weakened, and we're seeing very weak sea breezes every single day. Uh, we might see that break, that pattern break by tomorrow and into Friday and Saturday, but right now it's just hot and muggy. I mean, Savannah just hit their all-time record for nine degrees or higher straight days, 57 days in a row. So that's a pretty significant event, and we're just trying to grin and bear it here in the summertime in Charleston. I tell you, it's pretty hot. Yeah, it's been pretty hot here. I'm going to toss it over to James here in just a second. I do know that Charlotte tied the record today with a high of 97 degrees, so... James, how was you enjoying the heat today? Was you eating ice cream, drinking lemonade? What was it? Well, I have good news, uh, and loyal viewers will know I'm often sitting here drenched in sweat. Uh, we <laughs> finally got the AC fixed today. Yay! Oh. What a, what a great day for it. Uh, but uh, like most hot summer days, it ended in quite the uh, sky show. 
I'll go ahead and uh, screen share, and we'll show you uh, some radar images and some storm pictures that came in uh, and were uh, posted to Twitter by our friend uh, Brad. You can see this one actually came right across Uptown Charlotte about 6 o'clock today. We did have a severe thunderstorm warning, some small hail that fell in uh, parts of Uptown Charlotte, uh, multiple reports of trees down. Uh, here you can see some of the street flooding that hit, of course, right at 6 o'clock, just in time for the evening commute. And I just found that uh, Brad had posted this video of hail. So let's see, does this actually play? Let's see. I haven't actually seen any official storm reports of hail. I saw Brad talking about it. I saw the National Weather Service talking about it, but I've not seen any official measurements. I'm hearing this. Um, I'm hearing little frozen precipitation hitting the uh, car window here, but I'm, not, I'm having a hard time actually seeing it. So uh, we did get some pretty good storms that rolled through the Charlotte area today just in time for the evening commute. And um, Scotty, I think they came through your neck of the woods first. Yeah, they did. You would know the best time for a thunderstorm to come through Charlotte is 6 p.m., if you've not been in Charlotte or live in Charlotte, traffic's horrible anyway, and then you add a little rain and wind to it, it makes it even better. So uh, we did. We had some thunderstorms up here in the western Carolinas around, um, probably started about 2 o'clock to about 4.30, 5 o'clock before they moved into the Piedmont areas. Uh, we did get several damage reports out of McDowell County as well as a, a DOT worker who was struck by lightning. Uh, they were working on some roads uh, in the area, and they was taking shelter under a uh, covered shed, as it was really uh, raining hard and lightning hit a tree behind the shed and ran into uh, ran the ground system and, and struck the guy. So um, he's in Asheville Mission Hospital right now, uh, not doing the best from what I've heard last. So uh, thoughts and prayers with him and his family as he, uh, hopefully he recovers uh, from that lightning strike. But again, uh, temperatures were in the 90s today with some thunderstorms. Uh, looks like we're going to continue to see thunderstorms for the next few days. Uh, with temperatures reaching around 90 degrees, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. Looks like we could start to finally cool down and have some less humidity in the area by next week. And so let's throw it up to David Reese. David, welcome back. I know you did some uh, storm chasing down in the Caribbean uh, the past couple that of weeks. I did. How are, I'm glad to see you survived that, and how, how was the uh, weather up in uh, Charlottesville today? Well, hurricane chasing in a cruise ship, by the way, not recommended. I got a little seasick uh, that Wednesday night going between Cozumel and Grain Cayman. I actually had to switch around our ports so we could have at least nice days at both ports. But it was a nice cruise. Uh, it was a little bumpy Wednesday night, but that's to be expected when you have 40 to 45 knot winds and you're sailing into that. So it was a little windy. Let's just put it that way. Shared some beautiful pictures with the guys on uh, Facebook chat and everything else and on twi Twitter and my Facebook page. As far as our weather has been for the past couple of days, it's been hot. We ended a streak back on October, or October, I wish it was October, August 2nd of 21 straight 90 degree warmer days. That's a record all time at Cho, the airport here. Today, we hit it for the eighth straight day since we started another streak here. So it's been hot. It's been humid. Dew points have easily been in the mid-70s area wide of some dew points here as high as 76, 77 degrees, which is rather unusual around these parts. We're starting to talk about a cold front next week, though, as we get into Sunday afternoon. That cold front is expected to drop temperatures back down into the low to mid-80s, which is close to average for this time of year, maybe even slightly below average. So definitely looking forward to that. Other than that, I am tracking a few 
Strong to severe thunderstorms across the extreme northern tip of my viewing area in northern Culpeper County. Other than that, we had a few nice shelf clouds roll through earlier this afternoon. The storms rolled in, but we're looking forward to that cool down next week, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I heard a stat yesterday that um, Charlotte, uh, the, from Brad Panovich, uh, it's been 30 days since the temperatures dropped below 70 degrees. So uh, it's been a very hot, humid summertime, and it looks like it's going to continue for the next few days uh, before we get a little bit of relief uh, next week. Before we go to our uh, topics tonight, or topic tonight, and our guest, I do want to sh uh, throw it over to our tropical guy. Uh, Shay Gibson, he's going to talk to us a little bit about what's going on in the tropics before we get into uh, the main topic tonight. Sure. Thanks, Scotty. I'm going to go ahead and share screen here. And let's see. Let me know when you can see it. We got we have Tropical Storm Fiona that was just named today. I think that was the 5 o'clock update uh, for the, from the National Hurricane Center. Winds are 40 miles an hour heading northwest at 16 miles an hour. Uh, it is encountering some dry air. The Saharan air layer is still pulling off a lot of dust off of the the coast along that subtropical ridge so it's fighting off a, a pretty deep tongue of Saharan air right here to its north and so we're, we're kind of expecting it to, to have a, a little bit of a struggle ahead and stay as a minimal tropical storm for at least the next day or two. We'll, we'll see what happens. It's going to move a little bit further west and may get away from some of that and it could do some intensification but uh, here's our storm track view from Wind Alert kind of gives you an idea of its future track off to the northwest. Here's the floater image and you can see the convection the larger blob of convection earlier has shrunk, so it's it's definitely having some of that effect from the dry air that it's moving into. And uh, here's sort of a, a model track guidance. You can see how these are starting to split. These models were mainly to the northwest and north-northwest, actually, uh, as of a couple of days ago. And now that we actually have surface low and we have tropical system, uh, we'll have a better idea of the track. But for right now, nothing to worry about for the United States. We're just keeping an eye on it, and uh, we'll watch it in time. Back to you, Scotty. Yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting, the plots a couple of days ago were all to the northwest, or maybe even one or two oddballs uh, were on a straight track, and now that the past couple of days, is we're kind of getting that split that you were talking about, so that'll be interesting to watch as we go out through the, the next few days. All right, well, let's talk about our, our topic tonight, weather balloons, and weather balloons are a very important topic, not only uh, with uh, summertime, uh, thunderstorms, but also wintertime. Uh, storms or winter storms as well. We'll talk about that tonight. Before we do that, I want to bring on our guest. Uh, first, I'm going to bring on uh, Thomas Wyset, who is with the National Weather Service in Jackson, Mississippi. And Thomas and I are actually uh, friends, not far. Uh, he's a local boy here from Western North Carolina who has moved out to uh, Jackson, Mississippi. So, Thomas, introduce yourself. Uh, first time on the show tonight. Let us know what you do out in Jackson. Yeah, thanks for the introduction, Scotty. Uh, like you said, I work at the Weather Service Office in Jackson. I actually just started uh, back in late May, so relatively new the last couple months. But I work the entry-level position, so I actually do the uh, weather balloon releases whenever I'm in, uh, in the morning or whether it's the evening. Um, like you said, I am actually from the Hickory, North Carolina area originally. I went to UNC Asheville for undergrad and UNC Charlotte for grad school and found my way down here to Mississippi, so glad to be on the show tonight. I know, and Thomas and I were talking about, uh, before he went out there, about the uh, severe weather season that you guys always see down there in Jackson, and that probably will be ramping up here probably towards the uh, mid to end part of fall, right, Thomas? Yeah, usually uh, you know, fall, even through parts of winter, and especially in the spring's our big season, and they don't polish Axe and Jackson for nothing, so. <laughs> well, Thomas, uh, we appreciate you coming on tonight and look forward to your uh, input for the show. 
Our next guy I want to bring in is uh, meteorologist Carl Barnes from the National Weather Service in Charleston, South Carolina. Carl, welcome to the show tonight. Tell us about yourself and what do you do down in uh, Charleston? Yeah, thanks, Scotty. I appreciate it, and I appreciate y'all having me on today. Um, I'm actually also entry level here in Charleston. I've been here about two years, and uh, this is uh, somewhere an upper air site where we launch the weather balloons twice a day. Before this, I was actually up at the Sterling, Virginia forecast office, which is the office that covers uh, D.C. and Baltimore, uh, so a little bit more populated of an area, but up there did a similar thing. We also launched weather balloons up there, so all together I've been launching weather balloons as part of my job for about four years now. Um, so I have pretty good experience with it, and I'm the, the upper air focal point here at Charleston, so um, definitely have a, you know, a lot of experience coming very early to launch a lot of balloons, and uh, kind of nice to be down here somewhere where it's warmer, because I know launching weather balloons at 6 a.m. up in D.C. when it's uh, wind chills are in the negatives, it's not fun. I was good. I was going to say, I, I like D.C. It's a beautiful place, but I think I would prefer Charleston over D.C. <laughs> yeah, brutal winters. Yeah, and I'm from Virginia Beach, and I've lived, uh, I did my undergrad at NC State and my graduate at University of Hawaii, so that was definitely the coldest place I've ever lived, and uh, I can't say I'm, I'm really racing to get back there. Yeah, man, Hawaii. That, that must have been a tough gig over there. Uh, real, yeah, real tough. <laughs> That's and the pineapple, pineapple Express there, right? <laughs> and finally, let's bring on meteorologist uh, Nick Filio from the uh, National Weather Service up in Blacksburg, Virginia. Nick, welcome to the show. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do up there in Blacksburg and a little bit about yourself. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, as you said, I'm one of the forecasters here in, in the weather office in Blacksburg. Um, I do a little bit of everything, I guess. Um, I do weather forecasting. Uh, I'm what's called observing program leader, so I fix rain gauges, make sure that everything there is working and in proper order, and I do weather balloons. And uh, I got my start in weather uh, doing forecasting in the Air Force uh, down in, in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, and then I switched over to the weather uh, forecast office there for the National Weather Service. I did that uh, for about five years, and then... Uh, 2011, I moved to Blacksburg, and I've been here ever since. And uh, you know, it's, it's our area has a little bit of mountain forecasting, has a little bit of uh, forecasting, you know, in the Piedmont. So you, you get a taste of a little bit of everything around here. So it makes weather balloon uh, launching a little bit uh, uh, fun sometimes, I guess. Let's put it at that. I was gonna say you almost have the best of both worlds up there. It can be also be very uh, stressful. Uh, dealing with the Piedmont and the, the mountains, that uh, that uh, warm nose that I'm sure we'll talk about for wintertime setups, that can really uh, play havoc in your forecast in the wintertime. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, you, you know I, I did uh, deep south weather forecasting for pretty much my entire career before coming here, so it was basically learning how to forecast all over again once you get into the mountains. So, uh, yeah, it, it was a steep learning curve when, once I got here. Yeah, hate those wedge setups. I hate them. <laughs> uh, no fun. All right, well, let's talk about weather balloons tonight. Quite simply, let's open it up and talk about what is a weather balloon, what's the purpose of it, and uh, when do you guys launch them, and where do you launch them, and stuff like that. I guess I'll uh, start with you, Nick, and then we'll let the uh, rest of the guests talk. Okay. Well, a weather balloon is just, it's just that. It's a gigantic uh, balloon filled with 
Uh, most most places fill them with hydrogen. It's uh, cheap. It's e easy to come by. But you know, on the downside, I guess it's a little bit flammable. So uh, a few places actually use helium, and we're one of the also, sites. It's not even big dirty, so. so our one of our sites. Uh, the next couple plays out, Jimmy. So um, basically, uh, our location is on the Virginia Tech Airport property. And since we have airplanes that are close by, they prefer us to use helium. It's a little bit more expensive, but it's it's pretty safe to use. But uh, the balloon itself is uh, uh, attached to an instrument. It's called a radio sound, and that radio sound is just a package about the size of a, um, a, a tissue box, but it collects important data for us. It collects temperature information. It collects wind speed, wind direction, uh, pressure, humidity. Uh, every second is, is recording it as the, as the radio sound is lifted up into the atmosphere by the balloon. And the radio sound radios that information back to our office, and we use that to feed, we feed all that information into our weather models, and it helps us predict the weather uh, anywhere from a few hours out into the future to several days out in the future. And Tom? And Thomas, talk to us about uh, you're talking how you're one of the guys that launches the weather balloons. Uh, you and Carl talk about the times that you guys do these and, and why you do them at, at the times they are. Why you just does, don't do one at 10 o'clock in the morning, then maybe one at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Talk about what times you do it and the purpose for that. Right, yeah, we, we launch them at uh, 0 and 12 UTC time. So here in um, Mississippi at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. right now. And we do those two hours. Those are the synoptic times. And globally, all the locations launch them at that same time, and in the U.S. as well. So try and keep everything coordinated. Uh, that's why we do it then. Um, we do do uh, special launches. Actually, I was working back in June when we had a uh, big severe day. So SPC requested a, a special 18Z release that we did in the afternoon. Um, so I ended up doing two releases that day. Uh, also, NHC will request them when there's Whenever a tropical system enters the Gulf, they'll have us doing them, you know, four times a day at the usual zero, six, and then twelve and eighteen Zs. So. And you can do special launches other times, uh, but mostly those are the main times we do them. So if you're launching them all at a coordinated time, I guess you don't want to be the guy on West Coast time or right you know, get up at the middle of the night. Right. Yeah, and it actually when the time changes and we go back an hour. Um, that release time doesn't go back an hour either. So instead of 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. down here, it'll be 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. So the 5 a.m. release says will be quite interesting. Yeah, those those will be two of the coldest points of the day, or two of the cooler points in the winter time. So, uh, Carl, talk to us a bit about you guys down there uh, in Charleston. Uh, when the National Hurricane Center talks, asks you to launch these weather balloons, maybe for tropical reasons. Uh, does that put any strenuous on you guys? You have to pull in extra staff to do these as you're trying to prepare the the area for tropical systems, or you guys got that pretty short time uh, of doing these events? Yeah, so it definitely puts a lot more stress on our staff. But um, you know, we're kind of prepared for you know, come tropical season. We know that hey, at any point we can get called back. We can have to work extra hours. So when the hurricane center, um, they're Kind of, uh, they use their best judgment for when they think that a storm could actually impact the uh, an area that they're concerned with, especially the southeast. But when they decide that it does, uh, the whole point of doing the weather balloons, or one of the major points of doing it, is that 
they take the data from the weather balloon and then they put it into the model. So they want to be getting uh, the, the data from the weather balloons right at the right before they run each model run on the synoptic times. So uh, basically, what happens is um, they'll go from doing it like Thomas said. We routinely do it at zero Z and twelve Z, which here on the East Coast in the summertime is seven and seven, and uh, they'll actually go on the all synoptic times, so 6z, 12z, 18z, and 0z, which for us means that we're doing, in the summertime, we're doing one um, as well as uh, starting to get it ready at 6 p.m. for a 7 p.m. launch. We're also getting it ready at, uh, so that would be, sorry, noon and midnight for a 1 p.m. and 1 a.m. launch. So. Especially that 1 a.m. launch, we definitely have to have someone actually coming in to stay the night. But it's totally worth it because the data goes into the models. It's extremely important, especially for us because we're you know the closest coastal site to a lot of these storms and a lot of the uh, the more like subtropical air mass that's sitting off the coast. So um, it's definitely worth coming in. But they will typically start it um, when they start getting concerned. Usually somewhere around like five days or so before they would expect. A hurricane landfall, that's when they've been doing it recently. Last time we did it um, really extensively was for Joaquin, uh, when they weren't quite sure on the track of Joaquin, and they actually, um, we started doing the launches, I believe, five days before forecast landfall. And even once they realized it was going to stay off the coast and we transitioned to more of a flooding concern, we continued to do the launches um, basically right up until the time when the, the heavy rains and the flooding started impacting us. So, Nick, I want to ask you, and forgive me for pointing out the obvious, but you're sending a balloon with equipment up into the air, and I assume most of the time it you don't get it back unless somebody happens to come across it. That's correct. Uh, you know, we can track which direction it goes, how far away it goes, because it's got a GPS chip in it, and so we get the we can we're always getting the latitude, longitude of the position of the balloon. So, uh, but. You know, depending on time of year, when it, when we're in the winter time, the upper level winds are very strong. It'll carry the weather balloon maybe uh, 80 miles away from from our office. But in the summertime, when the upper level winds are light, sometimes the balloon goes a little bit this way, it drifts back this way, and it might come down 10 miles away from the office. But wherever it comes down, it could be in the middle of a swamp, it could be in the woods, some, it could be in someone's yard. So every once in a while, we, we do have some folks who find a weather balloon or, or a radio sound, and um, we've been, we in our radio sounds, we actually have a little envelope that it's got a uh, postage already affixed to it. It's got a address on there, and if they find it, they can, they, yeah, there you go, right there. Um, they, can, they can open up that wrapper and just stick the radio sound in it and stick it in a mailbox, and uh, it will go back to our reconditioning center, and, and those folks will try and salvage whatever components from the radio signs that they can. I would say we get back roughly uh, maybe 10% of the radio signs that we send up, you know, as, as a whole across the weather surface. Most of them just go away, I guess. Sure. And, uh, so, oh, oh, go, go ahead, James. Uh, I was just going to ask, so you get, you get 10% back. Which, where do you think most of yours go? I, I have a pretty good idea where they go in Charleston. I think they go out in the Atlantic most of the time. But how about for you? Where, where do they? Where do you usually get 
them sent in from? Uh, you know, our winds generally are from the west. Um, they they head up anywhere from um, uh, let's say Farmville, um, Luray, places like that. Places that are in between Blacksburg and Washington D.C. Maybe out towards uh, Wakefield, but they generally go east of our office because the uh, just the general flow of atmospheric winds take us take them um, like I said anywhere from 10 to possibly 80 90 miles to the east but uh, that's usually which way they end up uh, I have a silly question you guys ever uh, kind of bet place bets on where you think these things may end up like you have like a inner office pool or I think it's going to end up in Richmond today or wherever <laughs> they have thumbtacks and a map <laughs> Uh, we haven't done too much in our office. I don't know about uh, you guys over there in Jackson or Charleston. I don't know. What do you guys do? No, we don't do that here, but it sounds like a good idea, though. Yeah. <laughs> Add a little excitement. Yeah. yeah I, I wasn't going to ask this next question because I, I thought it was stupid, but after uh, Scotty's question. Um, <laughs> and, and before, and before, I think in a moment we'll have, we'll have Carl hold that up and kind of walk us through uh, the, the different pieces again. But I want to ask, uh, I guess I'll, I'll ask Thomas, have you guys ever considered, you know, Pokemon Go is, is very um, exciting now. People go out and search for things, publishing the GPS coordinates of where it dropped down and see if anybody can go on a big scavenger hunt to find it. <laughs> How do I know James is going to ask that question? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the problem, I guess, down here in our area is a lot of our places are very rural. Uh, a lot, some of our balloons end up west of us, and that's out in the Mississippi River Delta, and it's really flat, open land, and there's not much out there. We have some very remote national forests, so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting idea um, if people want to go out there and get them, but at the same time, if it's on someone's you know, private property or something, we don't want to encourage people to trespass either. So I guess there is that liability factor. And, right, and, 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 right. and down I just here, you don't really want to... Yeah. yeah, down here you don't want to trespass on people's lands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to end up with rock salt in you yeah. just for trying to get a weather balloon back. Yeah. The funny story that you asked that, James. Uh, Brad Panovich uh, and WCNC, they launched a weather balloon a couple of years back, and it got caught up in, I think it was in March, so it was a time when the upper-level winds were, were pretty fast, and uh, made it all the way to Fort Bragg, and then actually the weather balloon came down on, on the military land there, and it took them like two weeks to recover because they had GoPros with it. So they had to get permission from Fort Bragg to go scavenger out on, on the on the fields there while they're doing live uh, military practices, trying to, to locate it. They actually had to fly their helicopter over, and it finally spotted it in, top, in the top of a tree to, to recover it all. But that's a, a funny story about, about that. Yeah, that does sound like quite the headache. Of all the places for it to come down. And I yeah. think Shane's right. I clearly just want to go on a big scavenger hunt, a big like, geeky weather scavenger hunt. But um, let me um, let me ask Carl if he could hold it up again and kind of just walk us through the different parts because, you know, a little bit, it kind of just looks like, the bottom part just kind of looks like, like, a, like a lunch container. You get a to-go counter. Yeah, so um, just a little bit about it. Firstly, it's weight. I mean, it, it can't weigh a pound. It's very, very light, and that's... You know, for obvious reasons, since it has to be lofted up by the balloon, we want to you know, be able to use as little helium or hydrogen. Uh, we actually do use helium here as well because we have some objects around us that uh, we're concerned about. But um, you want it to be as light as possible. So it consists mainly the inner part. I don't know if you can see or not, but it consists mainly of this styrofoam core. And then it's wrapped in this uh, basically just like a cardboard. And it says on every direction, harmless weather instrument. Uh, I'm sure there's a story behind that, but I don't know what it is. 
Um, but uh, then we have on the top, as was mentioned before, we have the bag. It's here. You would just uh, when it lands, you would just remove the bag, put it in there, and ship it back. Um, as far as the sensors on it, we have the longest antenna here uh, extending out. This is actually the temperature sensor. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how well you can see that, but the way temperature is measured on this is, um, I don't know all the specifics of it, but it's basically based on the resistance traveling through this wire. So uh, the, the change in the resistance, I believe, is how it can measure temperature. So it's certainly not like a mercury or a traditional thermometer. Um, this is the relative humidity sensor. That's a bottom view of it. It's got this cap over top of it to kind of shield it as it's going up through the atmosphere. But it's, uh, I believe, very similar to kind of a chilled mirror type approach to doing that. Um, and the whole thing is powered by a battery. So one key is that you need all of these sensors to use as little battery power as possible because these flights, typically the flights last two hours or so, but you can actually plug the, the uh, radio on in and start setting it up uh, you know, half an hour or so before the flight. So it needs to last a good amount of time. There's a pressure sensor as well, but it's uh, contained completely within the instrument, so you can't see it from the outside. And then taking a look at the bottom, uh, the last features that we have, we can uh, customize, oh, sorry, uh, here we can customize the frequency of the radio sound. Under this flap, we have four different frequencies that we can use, and uh, not so much a concern here, but when I was up in Sterling, the Wallops Island upper air site was close enough that we actually had to use different frequencies than them to keep our um, keep our dishes from tracking the wrong radius on. So you can manually set one of four different frequencies. And then finally down here we have, the, uh, like I said, it is battery powered. So these are just the wires. You would plug the red wire into the white wire and that connects the battery power and starts the juice running through it. So um, that's basically a rundown of it. And, um, they, when you get them, they come with, the, obviously, the battery unplugged. So you would plug it in, let some juice run through it, and then we test all of these instruments to make sure that they're working correctly before we launch the radio sound. Because if they're not working correctly and we launch, it's basically useless because the data we're getting is going to be bad. And, and how, is, how is the data received back? Is it a ground station that's monitoring that frequency? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we have back behind every... Um, uh, office with an upper air program, we have basically a, uh, a separate shelter, and on top of that is a dish. So the dish will track the radio sound as it's moving, and it, um, the radio sound transmits the signal, the dish receives it, and the tracking, the, the way that that dish tracks the radio sound can be done a couple different ways. It can track it based on where the strongest signal is detected, or it can track it based on the uh, determined GPS location of the uh, of the radio sound. So the, basically it transmits data back on a frequency of somewhere around one data point per second coming back. So we get very high resolution vertical data as it's going up. And um, it's, it receives it and processes it locally. And then um, we send that data on to the National Center for Environmental Prediction and they put it into the models. Now the um does that also measure the wind speeds all the way up as well, correct? Yeah, so the wind speed is actually derived from the GPS-determined location of the radio sound. So um, I forgot to mention, but it does have a, a GPS chip in it as well. So every second that it's sending the data back, it's also sending its location back. 
So then, obviously, by seeing how the location of the radio sound changes every second, we can derive the wind speed from that. That's pretty cool. And Very cool. Um, talk to us about how how far they go up in the in the sky. What do you um, you know? Do they get to a certain altitude and just pop, or how does that work out? Yeah. So these. Um, Typically here, especially in the summertime when we have quieter weather, we'll get up to uh, 33,000 meters or more, which is you know about 100,000 feet. So it's definitely above the height where a, a jetliner would fly, um, well above the troposphere, well into the stratosphere. So uh, it goes up. It takes about two hours or so to get all the way to the highest point where it ends up popping. Um, and it, as it's going up, something interesting, the balloon, when we inflate it, is I mean, if you just put your arms out, it, it's about the size of what you could hold within your arms. But by the time it explodes, it's somewhere around the size of a typical garage, like a one- to two-car garage. So, And that's just because the air pressure de decreases as you go up. Cool. Interesting. Nick, and, uh, I'm curious um, how you explain this concept to somebody who maybe isn't familiar with it, because I imagine you get folks who go, you have radars, you have satellite, and we're launching balloons? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, um, it does, at first take, it does kind of seem like an archaic technology, but the reality is, it, I mean, it works. It's very reliable. We, um, we actually, to ensure that we're getting the best upgrade data possible, the Weather Service actually keeps track of scores for every office, and those scores are used to make sure that we're, we're you know, doing well with our launches and, and having as many successful launches as possible. But, uh, I mean, in terms of, uh, there's just not many better ways to measure upper air data. I know that there are um, other technologies. They're trying to put the, uh, they're trying to put sensors on the planes, and, and there's a couple other different ways. Like was mentioned before, I think, um, Maybe some some of the newer satellite technology is going to basically allow us to get the same data we would get from a sounding. But as it stands right now, this is just a really reliable, really accurate way to measure upper air data. Yeah, it's really it, really interesting, Carl. I was thinking the same thing with ASCAT and uh, scannerometers and, and some of these other instruments that we have with microwaves and lasers. And uh, so that's that's pretty neat. That's pretty interesting. Um, that kind of brings me into the next question. This one's for you, Nick. Um, where we talk about the, the past history of weather balloons, where they are now, and where they may be going in the future. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've been using weather balloons since at least World War II. Um, but back then, it was a far more labor-intensive um, process to kind of derive the data from them. Uh, back then, like right now, uh, launching weather balloons is just one of several duties that we have whenever we come into work. Uh, but, but uh, you know, decades ago, it would take a person, sometimes two people, their entire shift, once they released a balloon, uh, you know, they would follow it, track it with an instrument called a theodolite, which is kind of looking, it's kind of like this telescope-looking thing. Uh, but they would track the, where the weather balloon went, and they would um, uh, collect the data from them, and then they would spend their entire day just plotting out the, the data that they could derive from the, the balloon itself on this big, long piece of paper. And it would take several hours, and then almost by the time they finished doing that, it would be time to get the next weather balloon ready. So, you know, the, the technology has gotten much better 
now where it's it's all very computerized. We're getting the data once every second, as uh, Carl was mentioning. It's once you let the weather balloon go, it's it's you just can pretty much forget about it and let the the computer do all the calculating, do all the tracking of uh, the instrument. Um, so, you know, when you when you think about where it's been and where it is now, uh, you know, it, the the technology has come, you know, light years. So it's it's, and I'm I'm really kind of glad that I'm doing it where it is now, as opposed to what the folks had to do back then. Because uh, it, from what I've seen, it it's like I said, it's labor, very labor intensive. Uh, it takes a almost an entire shift to to get the data that you need. So impressive. Uh, I actually have a, a two-part question here. You say that they go up to 100,000 feet and then they pop. Well, how does it get back to the ground without really harming anybody? And also, how much do each of these uh, launches cost? Because you're talking about launching them only twice a day, and then sometimes you have special launches, which could make you guys launch them as much as four times a day. So how much does each uh, balloon launch cost National Weather Service? Easily a couple hundred dollars. Um, don't know the exact cost, but when you consider uh, the gas, the the parachute, which is it's um, it's about three or four feet in diameter. It's just a plastic orange chute. Uh, the balloon itself, about a hundred, easily a hundred dollars. The radio sound is a couple hundred dollars. I mean, it's it's about maybe uh, I don't know, maybe four to five hundred dollars a pop. Uh, twice a day times 92 stations across the United States, continental United States at that. Um, I, don't know, I don't know what the math is on that, but it's pretty expensive. Um, so that answers the first question. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I don't, I don't know the exact cost either, but, um, but yeah, the parachute is yeah, how it falls back down and doesn't hurt someone when it you know hits the ground, but... Um, yeah, I think it slows it down to was about three or four meters per second, something like that. Yeah. And and Nick, we were talking before we went on live. You guys are doing a little something different there uh, with your weather balloon launches because of the uh, Gozar project that's going to be launching in November, correct? That's correct. Um, so they found that the current uh, set the current rate. Uh, Radio science system is operating on the same radio frequency that Gozar is going to be operating on here when it goes up in a few months. And um, so, what they decided to do, where you're actually, uh, Blacksburg is the first office in the Weather Service that's receiving kind of an upgraded system. And the the gist of it is is that the radio sign looks almost exactly the same. There's a there's slight modifications to it, but it's operating at a different frequency, uh, a brand new frequency. Um, which is going to prevent us from interfering with Gozar, the Gozar frequency when it goes up. So the new operating system's at 403 megahertz. Uh, the current system that most offices are using uh, is, are around 1600, 1,680 megahertz. So the plan is across the Weather Service over the next couple years uh, to transition us transition the, the program over to this 403 megahertz frequency. Um, they've selected a few offices that they think would be 
uh, are most critical to change over quickly because they would cause the most interference with GOES-R when it finally becomes operational. Uh, but the plan is eventually over the next couple years or so, everyone's going to switch over to this new system. But okay. the radio sign itself looks almost exactly the same. Uh, it's just got an extra antenna there. But uh, it's kind of nice in that there's no moving parts. As, as Carl was alluding to a little bit earlier, you know, there's a dish that's always tracking the weather balloon. With this new system, it's just an antenna. So no moving parts, just an antenna sticking up in the air means uh, lower maintenance costs, uh, less uh, repair that needs to be performed to the system. So that's going to be really nice. And let me uh, get this question over to Thomas uh, before we kind of switch up and talk about something else. Uh, Thomas, we're talking about you guys as the weather service launching, but there's other organizations that launch, and I bring that up because I know you went to UNC Asheville, and you uh, guys at UNC Asheville, uh, especially in the wintertime, launch weather balloons. Talk to us about the colleges and, and different other places that may launch weather balloons besides the National Weather Service. Right, yeah, we launched them uh, during winter storms up in Asheville. We'd actually uh, send the data over to um, the Weather Service in Greenville, Spartanburg, and Morristown, and I think Blacksburg, too, would get it. Um, yeah, we did an intensive observation period where we launched, I think it was every three hours, um, and that actually used one of the uh, non-rotating parts. This was we actually had an antenna on a tripod we'd set up out in the grass to use uh, instead of having the dish that rotates to track the balloon. Um, we also launched them when I was at UNC Charlotte in grad school. We'd launch them for both winter and severe. Um, the funding is kind of harder to come by at the university level unless you have a consistent source. So it starts to limit, you know, your availabilities. Um, you know, certain universities launch them a lot more extensively. I know some launch them out in the field. I actually have, let me screen share, I have a few pictures uh, of some other uses. Find the right screen Sure. Is that showing up? Yeah, we can see you. So yeah, the military launches them. You know, here's a picture of that. Well, and I imagine yeah. the military would want to use them for for similar reasons that the National right. Weather Service would want to. Yeah, and the military has their own uh, like special operations military group where they actually can even they even go like behind enemy lines to set up weather stations and stuff. And in addition to launching the balloons, uh, here's a picture of some uh, incident meteorologists out west. They launch them for wildfires um, on the sites to get uh, a lot of critical information for support for emergency managers. Uh, they also launch them from ships. Uh, this is. I think the uh, naval ship that they launched it from, uh, they, that's also pretty critical. It actually gives us extra information to put into the models over the water. Um, over oceans, there aren't a lot of observations, of course, so this is a good opportunity to help give a little extra data for the models. And then uh, here's a picture of a university. They launch them out in the field during severe weather. Um, different research projects, and they have the big, like, Vortex projects. They uh, launch them out in the field a lot. And I think they did them with Pecan this summer, too. Uh, so they do a lot of field launches. Even from a car, you can see the rack of, uh, I don't know what compressor they're using in this. I would assume it's probably helium since they're driving around with these canisters in their cars, but it could be hydrogen. But, um, but yeah, so that's uh, some other uses that you wouldn't normally think of that weather balloons are used are outside of the weather service. Uh, if anyone else has any others that I missed, feel free to share those, too. And, Nick, we were talking a little bit earlier, close between your office and Raleigh's office, 
uh, they actually launched some weather balloons in Greensboro, and that's not directly a National Weather Service office there. No, I think that it was decided that that's a, a very good uh, point because you have the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains just to the north, and you know the the weather in the mountains is can be night and day different sometimes compared to the weather that's you know in the foothills and in the Piedmont in North Carolina. So uh, they've decided that uh, that would be a good place at the airport there to release weather balloons, and they have uh, certified technicians that go out and they follow the same exact schedule that uh, the rest of the weather service does, you know, once in the morning, once in the evening, 12Z, 0Z, and then, you know, if they're ordered to uh, release any other special balloons. It's just not a, it's just at a different location, but um, I think it's... Um, they're doing the exact same thing. Uh, it could also have something to do with where the weather forecast office is located in Raleigh, and they just decided that it would be easier to do it from Greensboro. Um, not entirely sure the reasoning behind it, but, uh, you know, it makes sense meteorologically. You know, it gives us a look at what's going on in the mountains and also a look what's heading, uh, going on in the, the Piedmont. So we like it just fine, I guess. <laughs> Very good. That's um. I really wanted to start to get into what kind of data is coming out of the weather balloons. I mean, we Carl explains to so Carl. I'm going to bounce this back to you, uh, and I'm going to do a screen share just so the audience can see uh, where we might go and get this information when we send a weather balloon up. Uh, where do we go? So can everybody see the screen so far? We got you, Shay. All right, good deal. So this is the Storm Prediction Center Observed Sounding Archive. And this is where one of the places you can find these. There's a whole uh, there's a whole bunch of, of websites that provide outputs for uh, these archives. And we'll take this one for tonight. And you can see all the little stars here on the left are all the the, the points where the weather balloons are released. And we'll pick Charleston since what Carl is at. And this this gives you what is called a skew T. Now there's other forms of log P. Uh, there's there's other kinds of outputs for a skew T. This is the version from the Storm Prediction Center. Uh, this is one of my favorites. And so Carl, kind of walk us through this and, and explain kind of what we're looking at here. Yeah, gladly. So uh, aside from the models, this is probably the uh, most useful thing that comes out of the upper air observations that we do. Um, these skew T's are extremely important for uh, getting an idea of the vertical distribution of um, not just moisture, but also wind. And that is, I mean, it's critical any time of year, um, especially, you know, in, in mountainous areas like where Nick is at, you know, knowing exactly where that freezing level can is can be extremely important, and that will come from doing this upper air launch. So uh, basically what we have here is we have the red line that you can see. Um, the, the lower end of the graph is the surface, and then as you go up, it's getting higher in height. So the red line is representative of temperature, the green line is representative of the dew point. So the closer those lines are together, the more moist the atmosphere is. So looking at this, you don't have to look at any numbers or anything just to look at this and be able to tell that, hey, we're a little bit more moist in the lower levels right now than we are in the mid levels. That's something you can just easily look at this and tell from this. Um, additionally, over here on the right side of the graph, we have the wind barbs, and that shows us uh, what the wind direction is at different levels. 
And uh, again, that comes from, that's derived from tracking the GPS as the sun is going up. Um, so when we're especially looking at severe weather and trying to see what kind of severe weather the atmosphere is conducive for on any given day, um, we have different uh, indices and kind of automatically calculated algorithms, I guess, that we look at. I'm not really going to get into the specifics of those, but that's what most of these numbers down here at the bottom are. Um, those will give us an idea of, just from a glance, it'll give us an idea of maybe what kind of severe weather we can expect during the day, if any. Um, and yeah, that's that area that, exactly, that Shay just circled. Um, you can see right now we have, like, for example, where it says the, the number besides supercell, you can see that's a zero. So not surprisingly, we basically have no threat for supercells today. Um, and, and this data that comes from the sounding is really, really critical um, on severe weather days, and that's why, well, actually, on severe weather days or days where we're expecting a little bit more active weather or maybe where we have a, a watch, a severe thunderstorm or tornado watch going up, we'll do a couple extra soundings because this, this is basically our only way of getting this actual observation from uh, the mid and upper levels. Right. Now, this is called a hodograph, correct? Yeah, so that's a that's a hodograph. Um, it's a little tough to look at this one because basically our, our winds are very light throughout the entire atmospheric profile. But uh, what you're looking at here is is uh, basically as if you were um, kind of similar to like if you're looking downwards. So whichever direction the line goes out from the center is indicative of the wind direction, and the distance that it is out from the center is indicative of the wind speed. So you can see right now it's staying close to the center, which basically means that um, we have very light winds. Now, on days where uh, you know we might be looking at supercells or even possibly tornadoes, what you'll see is a bending of the, the line as it goes out from the center. You'll see kind of a bending of the line, uh, which indicates wind shear, which is very favorable for severe weather. And you'll also see the line getting further out from the center and that's, uh, that indicates that we have stronger winds aloft, which again shows us that we have uh, a lot of that wind shear. So the hodograph is a, it, it takes actually a little while to get used to reading them, but then once you do, it's another way at a glance to get a really quick idea of, hey, what kind of weather can we expect today, especially if we get thunderstorms. Yeah, you can definitely see over Charleston, it's, it's very relaxed wind right now. And, and for those of you in the audience, when you have a, a simple staff like this, you're talking five knots and then or less. Um, a staff like this with a half tick at the end of it is five knots, a full tick is ten knots, and then when you start adding more and more lines to that it becomes ten, twenty, thirty, so on and so forth. So that's kind of how you read, read what's called a wind barb, and uh, that's that's an integral part of the SKU-T that we see. Anyone else want to comment on it? I actually have an example of a good severe weather one. I'll go up here. Sure, let me end my screen share. If James will flip it over to you. This was from uh, this was from Norman, Oklahoma, back in May twentieth, two thousand thirteen. So you can see the uh, like you were just showing with those winds, uh, come, how you have the stronger winds with height here, showing like a mid-level jet. Uh, and you guys just see on the hodograph talking about how the uh, line curves and also goes further out from the center point. So you can see the the wind shear there with with height and that profile. You also see how you have. Uh, this is actually what's referred to as a loaded gun sounding, where you have this low-level inversion down here, just above 850 millibars, but it's a very unstable atmosphere with almost 5,000 
uh, K for thunderstorm fuel. So as soon as the uh, updrafts from the cumulus clouds can get through this inversion layer, if once that arose, then you can have really explosive storm developments. That's just one of the uses for this that you'd see for, I guess, severe weather day. And that's how they come out with these storm risk potentials and categories that we always see, in the, and it goes out to the public, are based a lot on these QTs. So I do have, I did bring one with me, Carl, uh, back to you. And I'm going to do one more screen share, and I'll hand it back over to the guys. I happen to bring the SKU-T from the October flooding event that we had. This is from October the 2nd, 7 p.m. And tell us a little bit about what's going on in this one. I mean, you can see the, the green line and the red line are very close together, all the way up to 100 millibars. So should, you know, let us tell us about it. Yeah, so as we said, the closer they are, the more moisture we have. And to see this deep of a profile, um, so basically where you know you can see as we're going up the lines are kind of curving toward the left and then once you get up higher they kind of start to straighten and go uh, straight up. So where that bend is, um, kind of a, uh, above that you can see that there's still lots of moisture and it's very rare to get moisture up into that level but you can see basically through the whole depth of the sounding that we have um, the, the red and the green lines are either right on top of each other or very close to each other, which is indicative of just a lot, a lot of moisture. And you know, the, obviously, this was the event that led to widespread heavy rainfall across our area. And uh, I guess something else that's worth noting is that the steeper the slope of the line, um, the red line, the steeper the slope from bottom right to top left, the more unstable the atmosphere is. So that basically means that the steeper that line is, the uh, more the atmosphere wants to move vertically. And obviously, as it moves vertically, that's how you get clouds to form and how you get rain to form. So you can see that on this day, we had, um, you know, we had plenty of moisture throughout the atmosphere. But we actually didn't have a ton of instability. So that, that red line um, is, is contrary to the skew-t that Thomas showed. That red line isn't really as steep as you would expect on a real severe weather day. So that's why this day we had just consistent rain. We didn't really have any severe thunderstorms, didn't have any tornadoes, but we just had uh, just tons of moisture to work with, and we had a little bit better um, di dynamics in place across the area. So that's why we got uh, heavy rain, and we got you know some reports of well over 20 inches across the area. Yeah, that was certainly an impressive event. So uh, Louisiana just recently, Thomas, that's you. You're neck of the woods. You're kind of close to that. Uh, tell us what kind of soundings you got there in that area during the, the flooding in Louisiana recently. Yeah, we. It was actually we were just barely north of some of that heaviest stuff. I think the uh, the very southern tip of our southernmost counties had about 10 inches, and that was probably the highest in our area. But um, Slidell and Lake Charles, their offices, the area they covered, just got hammered. And actually, the um, the Shreveport office had almost a record high, what's referred to as a precipitable water value, and they had one that was almost 2.8 inches, which is extremely high. That just shows how deep and moist the tropical air mass was that led to all their rain they had. But um, you know, you could. It was almost similar to the one you were showing there from October, just maybe a slightly more extreme. Um, but when you get 
uh, precipitable water values that high, I mean, it's going to be a flash flooding event for sure. That and the, uh, the low pressure system that just hung around for multiple days and kept training thunderstorms over the same areas time and time again. So we, had, we got lucky here that it just missed our area. Had it been about 50 miles or more further north, that with those 30-inch rain totals would have been across the uh, Jackson Metro here, and that would have been maybe maybe worse than what it is down there. But, I mean, that's hard to say, but they got hit pretty hard. So, so I actually have a question for David, if a panelist is allowed to ask a panelist a question. David, so. I've never seen a skewed T on television, so I'm curious if you can explain to us how television meteorologists might use this data. Uh, we definitely use this behind the scenes. I mean, I have seen a meteorologist or two brave enough to be able to put this on the screen, but there's, as you guys can see, there's a lot of lines on there. It would take at least about a minute, minute and a half to quickly just kind of go over what some of the things mean. I mean, yeah, you can be like red line temperature, green line dew point, the closer they are, the more moisture in the atmosphere. That's a good 15, 20 second thing. But to really look into it, you just kind of need a little bit more time. One way that I kind of look at it, unfortunately, we don't have one here. The closest one is probably up in uh, Sterling or Blacksburg or Wakefield. So I kind of use the three different points depending on where weather is coming from. So most of the time I use Blacksburg's and I just look, it's just like, all right, how is their wind profile? How is their temperature and dew point in the mid-levels of the atmosphere? Is it showing a dry slot there? Could it become a little bit more on the stronger side or severe side? How is the flow up aloft? And that just kind of gives me a picture of what the atmosphere is doing, not only like during summertime months, but also during the wintertime months. Because uh, like Nick mentioned, we have the Blue Ridge Mountains 20 miles to my west. All right, I'm at 600 feet in elevation. They're at... 3,000 to 3,500 feet in elevation. Where's that freezing line? So lots of different things. And I also use the uh, forecast soundings that some of the computer sites and uh, model sites have started putting out now available to us. And it's always fun to click on the middle of a ridge just to see how weak the airflow is and also to kind of see, all right, how's the storms on Sunday looking? Are they looking severe? Are they looking wet? Are they looking to be fast movers, slow movers? So you can discern quite a bit of information just from looking at the temperature line and the dew point line and also the wind profile and also looking at the uh, hodograph too, the changing with wind height and everything else. So it'd be like, all right, I should worry about tornadoes or I should be more worried about straight line wind damage and a few other things. And I quickly glance at it. I probably don't spend as much time as others do on it because I'm, I'm more of a time constraint than other meteorologists, especially in the National Weather Service. But that's just a quick version of how I look at it for about five minutes or so once I get into work every day. Yeah, I know one I'm of the... Gonna put, go ahead, the, Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say one of the main things that I look at, uh, the weather balloons here, I mean, not only... The, the severe weather threats, but the sea breeze for the coastline, it's extremely valuable. These coastal weather balloons, the inland right there at the National Weather Service Charleston at the airport, it's a perfect place to launch these balloons because it gives us a great sounding above where the convergence zones would be and, and a nice profile of what the sea breeze is going to do for the day. What do you think, Carl? I think you're muted. Can we get them muted? Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely something that we look at. Uh, the sea breeze gives us an idea of, um, you know, we're looking at our low-level lapse rates. We're looking at what kind of wind because, obviously, um, a lot of times we have calm winds in the morning, 
So it worked out perfectly that launching the balloon at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m., depending on what time of year it is, works out pretty perfectly that we get that up right before the sun or right around the time the sun comes up. So we can see what kind of winds we have above the ground so that when we do get the heating on the ground and we get all the mixing that happens during the daytime, we can have an idea of what kind of winds are coming. So, yeah, I mean, with, as Jay said, with our location, we're perfect for getting a good idea of the sea breeze. Um, and we're right where usually we'll get the marine layer to our east and then the, the more like continental land air mass to our west. So um, we, you know, we use the soundings really, uh, we really interrogate them closely because they're very important to us. And typically when we come in, I would say most people, the sounding is the first thing they look at. Well, Scotty, back to you if you have any other questions for, didn't you have a question for Thomas? Yeah, Thomas, uh, I know that you have the winter weather stuff uh, up on your screen. I, you know, us living in the Carolinas and, and Nick, you living up in the Blacksburg area, uh, weather balloon launches are pretty vital, especially in our areas during the wintertime. So kind of talk to us uh, a little bit about that, Thomas, maybe what you have up on your on your screen and then Nick can, can follow up as well. Yeah, sure. So this is kind of, uh, you know, you get a lot of different kind of precipitation types during the winter, whether it's freezing rain, sleet, you know, plain rain, or snow. And based on what you get at the surface depends on the temperature profile with height. So what I have uh, now, it kind of shows a breakdown between those different types. So this is in Celsius, so zero Celsius is the freezing level. So with an all-snow, if you look at the far right, you can see all the way up to five kilometers above the surface, it, everything's below freezing. So it falls as snow all the way through. With rain, you have a deep enough warm layer above the surface to where it might be snowing above five kilometers there, but it all melts into rain by the time it gets to the surface. With sleet, you have a, a shallower warm nose, so it starts to snow, then it melts, but then there's a deep enough cold layer down your or the surface where the rain can refreeze into sleet pellets. And then with freezing rain, the snow melts, but the cold layer at the surface is too shallow for it to refreeze into sleet, so it freezes on contact at the surface is freezing rain. Um, I know in, in the Carolinas and Virginia, during colder damming events in the winter, uh, getting forecasting these precipitation types can be very tedious. Uh, you can get very cold air that lingers right at the surface, but then higher up, you get uh, warmer coming in from the south. So determining where exactly that line sets up between rain and snow and freezing rain and sleet makes a huge impact on the forecast. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's really huge for our area because, you know, especially in the mountains, as you were alluding to, that cold air coming down, those big, cold, high-pressure systems, they come in from New England, they spread southward, uh, east of the Appalachians, they spread southward across the mid-Atlantic and sometimes as far south as into Georgia. And uh, it's, it's, it's just a shallow layer of really chilly air, you know, below freezing. And uh, sometimes it, it fills in in the different uh, valleys uh, intermixed in the mountains there. So uh, you, you, you can drive maybe, you know, 15 miles due west, you know, going up these ridges and then down in these valleys and you watch the temperature change and all this cold air is hugging 
the, the valley bottoms. So in those areas where the temperature is below freezing and the air just above is above freezing, and you get this rain falling down from the warmer air above into this this uh, area where the you got um, temperatures below freezing, it's, it forms in the freezing rain. So that's a really big challenge uh, across our area, and in, even in Sterling's area, and as far south as perhaps like Atlanta, you know, Georgia. Um, but uh, you know, these temperature profiles here that you were just explaining, uh, and sometimes it's the models have a very hard time just picking out whether uh, the precipitation is going to fall asleep or is freezing rain, or sometimes just as snow. So it's it's. Uh, it's, it's one of the biggest challenges that we have during the wintertime in our area. Definitely. And quickly, I know we're, we're right at the 9 o'clock hour, a little bit over. Uh, we talked about the SKU-T maps, but uh, you also said this goes into the modeling, into the GFS and models like that. We've had a lot of shows on this, uh, a lot of shows on, on our show about models. Quickly talk to us, uh, whoever wants to, about how that gets input into all the, the global models that, that we use day in and day out. Yeah, I'm not sure that uh, I know all the exact technical side of it. Um, that's that's more for the modelers to handle. But um, what we do is we have um, 30 minutes into our flight. So right now we're launching at 7. So usually about 7.30 or so, we'll send out um, over our system, our distribution system, we'll send out the freezing level because that uh, so often is one of, if not the most important things to come out of the sounding. So we send out the freezing level first. Then about an hour into the flight, we'll send out what are called the mandatory and the sig uh, significant levels. And so the mandatory levels don't change. So those are the levels that uh, go into the model uh, every time, no matter what the weather situation is. Um, and those are, uh, I think, just mostly the, uh, the typical levels that you look at. Uh, the surface, 1,000 millibars, 925, 850, and so on as you go up. So it's not, the models aren't pulling in every second's worth of data as the balloon's going up. The models are pulling in the kind of snapshots of these really significant levels, and then the model focuses on those levels uh, when it's running. And, um, you know, it takes the model a couple a couple hours to run, so we're getting the, that data in to INSEP. Um, right when they're getting ready to start the model run. So they basically start it as soon as they have the data in from most or all sites. And I apologize. I don't know if it was just my computer or if anybody else watching live. The whole Hangout experience just kind of hung there for a second, but I think we got uh, kind of the bulk of that answer, and I think Scotty may have fell victim to whatever that glitch was, but he, but he's he's back now. Uh, I did. I, I thought... Thought my internet had went out. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> I think we all froze for a moment there. So, uh, but I think I think we're uh, we're back in the saddle now. And uh, Scotty, I can pass it up up to you. Otherwise, I was going to ask these guys for the, kind of their social media credentials. Yeah, definitely. Uh, as we wrap up a little bit past nine, uh, if you guys want to, you can share your personal Twitter if you want to, or if you want to share your weather office's Twitter account, Facebook pages. Uh, definitely do that. However, you'd like uh, some of our audience to get. In touch with you, I'll uh, I'll start with Carl there in uh, Charleston. Yeah, so ours are pretty easy to remember for the office. Facebook.com backslash NWS Charleston SC, and our Twitter is at NWS Charleston SC. And especially our Twitter, give us a follow because we are one of the offices that are uh, 
exploring how the Weather Service can best use Periscope. So we have been trying to incorporate Periscope into our social media platform. We don't do it every day, but we, especially when there's busy weather, we try to do it as much as possible. So if you use Periscope or you're curious about it and you like the weather, then uh, definitely go give us a follow on Twitter. All right. And Thomas and Jackson? Mississippi. So, yeah, our Twitter is at NWSJacksonMS, and uh, you can just search for uh, National Weather Service Jackson, Mississippi on Facebook as well. All right. And Nick? Uh, ours is right on our webpage. If you go to uh, www.weather.gov uh, slash Blacksburg, you'll look down in the bottom of our screen there and our Twitter and Facebook accounts. I think it's just easier just to tell where it's at in case someone I speak too quickly. But um, if I share my screen here, I can maybe just show you. And I'll just point it out right here. We have our social media dashboard. Click on that in our Twitter account right there. Uh, Twitter.com slash NWS Blacksburg. And there's our Facebook account, Facebook.com NWS Blacksburg. So you can be reached there. Very awesome. Well, guys, we appreciate the uh, show. It's an awesome show tonight. Hope everyone uh, watching tonight learned something. And uh, Look forward to uh, talking about weather balloon launches, especially here as the uh, winter weather starts to uh, appear here in the uh, forecast areas in the uh, in the United States as we transition into fall and the winter time. It'll become uh, probably a hot topic around here, especially here uh, in North Carolina, right, James? That I forty eighty five corridor is is right there on the edge. <laughs> yeah, and they're always trying to figure out where it's going to snow and where it's going to sleet and. Man, if only we had all the money in the world, we could just launch these every hour. We'd we'd have, we're getting there, right, guys? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, thanks so much for for coming on tonight. Stick around after the show. I want to thank you again for coming on. Next week we're talking about inland effects for uh, tropical systems. Uh, we have on Gary Stevenson from the. Uh, Time Warner Cable or Charter or I don't know what the new name of that company is yet, but uh, <laughs> Gary is from Raleigh. He uh, he'll be joining us. Uh, he was with Time Warner. I don't know if they've changed over to Charter yet, but I don't know that. Slowly James surely, I think it's happening. James knows all the ins and outs of the TV world. So, uh, but Gary will be joining us as well as David. Remind me who else? I know you sent it to us earlier. I don't have Daniel it. Phillips. He's the weekend meteorologist at KATC down in Lafayette, Louisiana. They saw some incredible flooding down that way, so he'll have some information inside as to how flooding can be an impact, whether it's from a tropical cyclone, named or not named. Yes. Are we going to talk about brown ocean effects as well? We can, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely bring it up. So we'll, we'll talk with them, and then as we round out the end of the month, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Eric Blake from the National Hurricane Center, actually going to talk about the hurricane hunters, and it, kind of dealing with what we've talked about tonight, uh, what they do uh, as they investigate hurricanes flying in and out. So uh, that's for uh, the rest of the month, so we uh, hope that uh, you'll be joining us next Wednesday as we talk about uh, the inland effects of tropical systems. We may be, uh, hopefully, well not hopefully, but it looks like, uh, the tropics are starting to heat up around the Atlantic and possibly uh, the Gulf as we go into the next few weeks. So we'll have to watch that. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, enjoy uh, the rest of the, your week, 
and hopefully uh, by the time we're talking with you next week, it's going to be a little bit cooler and a little bit less humid. Have a great week.